0: listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice.
1: Welcome back everyone to the Primary Medicine Podcast. It's number 66 and Dr. Medo back to talk about well, two things. Uh, number two is going to be constipation and what's, what's the first thing you want to talk about, Dr. Kevin?
0: Uh, I'm so excited. You know we're doing it. We have relaunched Physician Empowerment. Dimitri, Wing and myself are relaunching Physician Empowerment. And as we mentioned uh, in previous podcasts, what this is, is this is a CME program dedicated to the whole physician. This is a program designed to improve your finances, improve your practice management, improve your work-life balance and your overall satisfaction. We want physicians to be doing their best medicine and living their best life and this program is outstanding we are now CME certified and although we are in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak the date for the our first uh, CME certified event is December 27th 2020 in Costa Mujeres just outside of Cancun Mexico And uh, as I said, it is uh, CME certified for for family physicians and offered through C courses. It's going to be outstanding. Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty with travel uh, and bookings. um, So that may come later for people in the year once uh, we get a clearer picture of international flights. Uh, But regardless, I want you to have a look at it. Go to our website, bizempowerment.ca, P-H-Y-S, empowerment.ca. And uh, have a look at the have a look at the program and the course offerings. Uh, it's going to be great. There is also some talk and we're, we're in process of, uh, exploring online material, make it more accessible for physicians. We know how busy we all are. No one understands that better than physicians and their partners and spouses. Um, so that's why we're looking at an online option as well. And so stay tuned for more on that. Anything you want to add, Dimitri at all?
1: No, no, I'll actually add the uh, the website to, uh, to 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 our website so you can easily link to it. Yeah,
0: that'd be amazing. And uh so should we move on to the topic?
1: Yes. Let's move on. To uh to a problem of moving on, constipation. Very common. Very common issue. Uh certainly in family medicine, but I'm assuming you do get some emergency constipated people coming to your to your department as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we absolutely do. So, what I'd like to cover then is sort of a broad overview of constipation and some approaches to its management. This is not going to be an in depth exploration of every single uh, treatment modality out there or a deep dive on pathophysiology. And our focus today is going to be on the elderly and those with severe chronic medical conditions. Um, a case that comes to mind is. A couple of patients I saw who were in middle age and uh, had severe cerebral palsy, autism spectrum disorder, were nonverbal and were found to be, you know, essentially just agitated. One was found to be in urinary retention. And of course, the CTs revealed extensive fecal loading. So very, very severe constipation. And so those um, cases just sort of highlight how how big a deal this can be for our patients. And if we reflect on our own practices in emergency medicine and primary care, how many patients who have chronic medical conditions who are elderly and are struggling with constipation. And we maybe have a tendency to minimize this, but this can be very debilitating for patients with a, with a big detrimental effect to their quality of life and even their dignity. I'm trying to cover such an important topic for our patients and to do our best care when maybe it's a less desirable thing um, and less sexy medicine than some of the other areas that we practice in. So specifically what I'm going to be covering today is the diagnosis of constipation, things you can never miss, management. And like I said earlier, the target population is going to be the elderly and those with severe chronic medical conditions. We're not going to be covering pediatric constipation. That's a whole other kettle of uh, fish or can of worms. Uh, We're not going to be you know going through mechanical bowel obstructions, post-operative ileases. Post-operative and also, and there is some overlap here, we are not going to be covering constipation type IBS. That I think is a very broad topic. It really deserves its own focus. Uh, and it is different than sort of, you know, what I consider to be a more primary constipation. And lastly, I'm not going to be doing a deep dive into the neural reflexes and muscular behavior of the bowel uh, and all the pathophysiology behind it. We're really going to focus on keeping this clinically relevant. Any questions at all?
1: No, no, no questions. Though, and I think it's it's good to talk about elderly because we do tend to forget constipation in the elderly. We, we tend to see it a lot in children, but obviously it's a big issue in the elderly as well. So
0: let's do this in four easy steps. Number one, make the diagnosis. Number two, screen for the never misses or red flags. Three, identify contributing factors. Four, initiate treatment. And then five, I would put that one in there softly, when to refer. So, number one, making the diagnosis. This is tricky. Constipation ha- has highly varied definitions. There are a lot of social and psychological hangups behind, you know, what is constipation. Families and patients will often have their own biases and opinions about what is what constitutes normal bowel behavior. So we really have to be certain we're not over undercalling under calling constipation. So rather than give like firm diagnostic criteria, which may not be that helpful for frontline practitioners, I think it's useful to just highlight the features of constipation when you're making the diagnosis or you're suspecting the diagnosis. And ideally, you're looking for a fairly long standing pattern. So weeks to months, hard lumpy stools, excessive straining or effort a feeling of incomplete evacuation, uh, occasional fecal incontinence, um, which can be hard stool or soft overflow. It can be so severe that patients actually have to manually disimpact themselves to relieve a stool and trigger the uh, rectal reflex to defecate. And then if you want a number, not that it's necessarily the right number, less than three bowel movements per week. Any questions on that at all, Dimitri?
1: No. And, and Yeah. And again, it's the definition for constipation can be a bit tricky, but but I think that's a good approach to have, especially if there's a been a change in the bowel movements, as you were saying, uh, things were going yeah. well and now something has changed.
0: Yeah. And that leads us nicely into step two. And that is screening for the never misses. This is by no means comprehensive, but here's the big one. If you please view constipation as a symptom and less as a diagnosis please look for the underlying etiologies that are going to contribute to so-called constipation or change in bowel habit. Any change in bowel habit in elderly should make you think about a malignancy, um, a colorectal malignancy. Um, but you can have other ones, including you know invasive um, or rapidly expanding uterine, ovarian, or bladder cancers. Those things can all affect bowel habit. And in these populations... Um, the elderly who may have a cognitive impairment and dementia, your patients who have perhaps like the one I mentioned earlier with uh, cerebral palsy and is nonverbal with autism spectrum disorder. Those can, those patients may not be able to advocate for themselves if there's been a change or that they're feeling perhaps abdominal pain in addition to having these symptoms of constipation. So the obvious ones, you know, fever, weight loss, night sweats, but also look for, for other things like urinary retention, which can be a symptom of fecal impaction, but can also be a symptom of malignancies. Watch out for overflowing incontinence. Watch out for bleeding. Watch out for excessive pain with the bowel movement or stool impaction to imply perhaps a, an anal disorder. All right, that's by no means comprehensive. Um, again, this is meant to be an approach. But I just, again, want to emphasize in step two that you're really viewing constipation as a symptom, or if you're about to make that as a formal diagnosis, make sure that you've excluded other major contributory causes. Because honestly, if you give enough RestoreLax, anything that isn't a mechanical bowel obstruction, you will probably get loosening of the stools. But are you really curing or treating the underlying issue if it's a malignancy or stricture or some other serious process? So moving on to step three, you want to identify contributing factor, factors. This is so, so, so important. It is all too tempting to simply give your patient a prescription and say, let's see how it goes. But it really is so, so, so important to step back and look at the whole the whole picture and not just the patient, but looking at their environment. And I'm going to go through this in a very systematic fashion again by no means comprehensive but I want you to give you a framework to think about constipation and I just start I I generally start with my differential diagnosis and everyone does it a little bit different differently but I just start essentially in a in an anatomic or geographic kind of format so if you can imagine the patient step out and go ask yourself what kind of a living environment are they in first off so what access to food do they have are they on a low fiber intake diet? Are they very limited due to, you know, low income, inability to cook? I once had a patient who was profoundly constipated. He joined his fiance in her country of origin and for five weeks ate only white rice. And that was a, obviously the source of his constipation. He was healthy otherwise. So that was a big issue. We had to disimpact him. Are they, does the patient have low fluid intake? Are they... An aspiration risk, do they have trouble getting to tap um, to get a glass of water? All those things are going to factor into um, what I consider to be the major dietary components to constipation. Another big, big, big thing, especially one that we have a lot of control over, are their medications. Dimitri, do you want to fire off some medications that you think contribute to constipation?
1: Opioids, you have your... uh... Tricyclics, uh, you have medications for incontinence, anticholinergics. Uh, yeah, lo- lots, lots of Yeah,
0: Parkinson's meds, iron Parkinson's supplements, meds, even antihypertensives. Right. So, lots, lots of medications. So, it's worthwhile having a review of those. And I'm not saying necessarily to discontinue them, but consider a reduction, a uh, dose reduction, or switching to an alternate medication, something along those lines. Now, the next one I want to get into, and this is where it's useful to have family involved or other caregivers and find out a little bit more about the patient's day-to-day living. So this next category, I I call the lifestyle slash behavioral slash environmental. So if your patient has dementia, they may not be responding to cues from their bowel to sit down on the toilet and, and attempt to have a bowel movement. They may not have an established routine anymore, you know, where, you know, perhaps they used to get up in the morning, get dressed, have breakfast and go have a bowel movement. Now it's different um, due to dementia and maybe there's some sleep disturbance there. And the same essentially goes with a patient who's had a traumatic brain injury or has an intellectual disability. Um, they just may not be aware of that need to cue for a bowel movement. Low physical activity is another contributing factor, right? So somebody's got debilitating arthritis or had recently had joint replacement surgery and now they're not as active as they used to be. This may be a contributing factor. And it may be as much as telling somebody to get up and walk a few paces to to move. Or if your patient is quite infirm uh, and mostly bedridden, maybe they need to be sat up into a chair as part of a morning routine. Are the circumstances under which a patient has to toilet Stressful for that patient. So, a good example would be an elderly patient with mobility issues who is reliant on a caregiver. Perhaps it's a spouse or a child who has their own life or their own task to get through in the day and rushes the patient onto the toilet and off of the toilet. And this is where I touched on earlier that there's an element of dignity to patients because for a lot of patients, particularly the elderly or those with chronic medical conditions and mobility issues, intellectual issues, um, what we take for granted toileting on our own with obviously no assistance, um, many people are not able to do. So, you know, going back to this example that I'm highlighting is if you have an elderly person who is not able to adequately ambulate on their own, not able to transfer to the toilet and, and, and essentially clean themselves and transfer off, They might be in this might be a very stressful situation for them because they might have a child or caregiver who tries to rush them on and off the toilet within 10 minutes. And this might be a form of abusive behavior, but it's more often just benign rushing or benign kind of neglect in the sense that somebody doesn't realize that an older person might simply need 30 minutes or longer to sit on the toilet. And that they're rushing because, you know, the caregiver's got to get off to work and come on, mom, just go to the bathroom, get this over with. I want to get going back to work. Or inadequate access to facilities or the bathroom, right? It may be an issue that it's a long ways for the patient to go. Maybe there's a toilet on another floor that they have much easier time using, but they're not always on that floor. And, And so look at that whole situation because, you know, A whole bunch of RestoreLax is probably not going to fix the problem if they just are not getting to the toilet enough. In fact, it's going to make it worse because they may get diarrhea and they may have accidents, which, again, just absolutely negatively impacts a patient's quality of life and their dignity. So think about those things and work with their caregivers, work with their formal supports, work with their informal supports. Any questions on that at all, Dimitri?
1: No, not at all. That's great. People often forget to ask about, Specifically, that question. Do you have any issues getting to the bathroom? If the bathroom is on the second floor and you can't get up, like that, that, that is the issue, not the restore relax. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's a lot more than a prescription. And
1: those are uncomfortable questions. But I think what you're going to find
0: is that it's a relief for pa- patients and caregivers to talk about that, that there aren't any limits that it's not gross or beneath the physician to talk to their patient about this is their life. This is part of their care. This is what you need to, these are the issues you need to get into to, to, to provide meaningful benefit for your patients. So moving on to more formal medical categories, if you want to call them that would be neurological things. And again, this is going to be just a flyby: multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, ALS, cerebral palsy, spinal cord injuries, autonomic neuropathies. These have primary effects on the, the enteric nervous system, but they will also have issues with mobility and fluid intake as well. Endocrinopathies, electrolyte disorders, and again, fly over here, electrolyte disturbances, chronic kidney disease, hyperglycemia, type 2 diabetes, uh, type 1 diabetes, hypothyroidism, those would be the big ones to consider, devising a patient medically. Myopathies like myotonic dystrophy, dermatomyositis, chloroderma, those kind of rarer things. Bowel wall itself, strictures, again, cancers, masses, um, both colorectal cancers as well as you know malignancies that are invasive of the bowel wall or externally compressing the bowel wall prior bowel injuries whether it's surgical or ischemic or you know inflammatory bowel disease those are all things to consider and then lastly you know if you're thinking anatomically anal rectal issues so anal stenosis a severe anal fissure in an elderly person especially one with dementia or a patient with cognitive impairment if it hurts a whole bunch to strain, to push a hard bowel movement out, just like a child with an anal fissure, they're not going to want to go and they're not going to want to push. And they're not necessarily going to be able to tell you that there's a whole bunch of pain down below. So this is, again, where you need to get into the details and you need to examine your patients. And then lastly, fecal impaction. If you have a big hard stone of of stool there, it's going to be very hard for the patient to pass bowels around that. That's just, again, a a very brief approach, but the thing I want you to take away from that is the breadth of contributory factors when it comes to constipation, that it's a lot more than just fluid and fiber intake. And again, please view constipation as a symptom rather than a diagnosis. Moving on. Treatment. This is step four. You're ready to treat. Number one, and I always, I don't know, maybe I go on about this too much. There's A lot of kind of coaching with patients, spouses, caregivers, family about reasonable expectations here. Okay. Because a lot, I guess from my perspective as an emergency physician, you get patients that come in with a whole bunch of, you know, severe constipation or it's been a long time coming. And, you know, perhaps they've even done a CT scan, which shows, you know, just fecal loading without any other acute findings. And I'm trying to talk to them about constipation and people want this over, right? They and in their view, and it's not necessarily wrong, they just want the, the patient patients and, and the families just well, why can't we just clean them out? You know, give them a whole bunch of laxatives, get those bowels moving, get it all out, all that bad, bad cucky poo, <laughs> and get it all out. And I really have to go back and stress the fundamentals that yes, go lightly, if you drink enough of it, we'll get rid of everything, but unless we're dealing with the underlying issues. And unless we're dealing with the contributory factors, we're not fundamentally changing anything. So number one is I tell patients it takes weeks and weeks, months and months to become constipated, and it's going to take weeks to become unconstipated. So setting up a reasonable time frame around how long this is going to take to properly resolve the issue, that it's going to be a lot more than simply writing a prescription for laxatives. And it's also important to emphasize what is a normal for that patient, right? So normal is a very widespread. Some patients can go once a week and be perfectly normal. Others can go three, four, five times a day, and they're still normal without any pathology in their bowel. So it's about emphasizing what's normal for the patient, that it should be symptom and quality of life oriented treatment, right? So we're not going to sit and count bowel movements. What we should really be doing is, is your Loved one is your mother or father, happier, comfortable, feels in control of their bowels, feels in control of their life, relief of any pain or bloating, those sorts of things um, are going to be important to target when you're treating and not focusing on how many bowel movements a day and even what the stool consistency looks like. Because again, that can be highly varied. So getting over what I'd call a lot of Freudian anal retentive, anal expulsive sorts of things, Getting over a lot of Victorian era, you know, worries about stool and and just setting up, like I said, reasonable expectations for patients and their family and and caregivers. Okay.
1: Any questions on that at all, Dimitri? Again, very good point about the time it takes to deconstipate somebody. And the the same principle as in children, uh, parents are surprised that sometimes they have to be taking laxatives for a year before things really start flowing. So that's a really good point. Again, Kevin.
0: Yeah. And then um, moving on to formal treatment. Again, I tend to view whatever we prescribe as therapy and it has side effects and it has a negative detriment on a patient's quality of life. So I'm very mindful when I prescribe things that I'm doing it in a, in a way that is going to fit into the patient's overall lifestyle and, and make it manageable. So First off is dietary changes. And again, these are non-pharmacologic measures, but you want to aim for 20, 25 grams of fiber per day. But again, is it necessarily right or fair to a patient with cognitive or intellectual disabilities or food aversions to force feed them a bunch of whole grains that they really don't like for what I'd consider to be somewhat of a marginal benefit and not a lot of evidence? Probably not, right? So looking at your patient, seeing what she or he needs. Increasing fluid intake, um, exceptions being, you know, major aspiration risk, end-stage renal disease where they're on dialysis and fluid restricted or CHF patients. I try to tell patients to aim for 500 cc's of water or f- fluids a day in and above their normal thirst. Because remember, as we get older, our, our drive, our thirst drive decreases. Um, so, just say, you know what, have one big cup of water or, you know, fluid on the counter. And I want you to fill that cup up and drink that. At some point during the day, I want you to drink that cup to increase your fluid intake by around 500 cc. Moving on to medications. Again, this is another one that we have a lot of control and latitude over as prescribers. So reduce or remove contributing medications before you add something. Behavioral slash environmental. So Again, gentle, non-stressful reminders to use the toilet. So for caregivers, family, you know, talk to them about, and you know, I'll give somebody a lecture, but you know, just try to help, help patients in, or, or family members and caregivers go into the patient's shoes. Like, how would you feel if somebody, you know, hustled you onto the toilet and five minutes later hustled you off, you wouldn't want to go. So gentle reminders to use the toilet. And you can even consider scheduled toileting. So set up a routine, like where you'll get the patient, you'll mobilize the patient, dress the patient, feed the patient, and then go sit down for, you know, 15 to 30 minutes um, on the toilet, but not a lot of pressure to have a bowel movement. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, fine. But the idea behind kind of rewiring their higher, their enteric nervous system um, to get into having a bowel movement at a specified time of day, typically morning. Optimized medical conditions, you know, again, I listed all those, I won't list them again, probably a big obvious one would be better control of blood glucose is going to help um, reduce dehydration of the patient and improve any autonomic diabetic neuropathy. Moving on to more kind of formal directed therapies at constipation, if you're suspecting and you know, even if there isn't a lot to go on, if your patient isn't able to tell you what their poop is like down below, like if there's an issue with communication or cognition, you should probably just go ahead and do the DRE rather than guessing around it. I, You know, we, I, you know I understand it's not necessarily the most pleasant part of the physical examination. It can be uncomfortable for patients. But again, we're here to provide care in all circumstances. And so um, what I'm getting at is, if there is a large stone of stool there, it needs to be managed a little more aggressively than just stool softeners and lifestyle modification. The patient may need to be disimpacted. Now, I do put a lot of caveats on this. Number one, uh, it can be uncomfortable. It can cause bleeding. You're too rough. It can cause bowel wall injury or perforation. Also keeping in mind that it's only a small part of the problem. Disimpacting the you know bottom six inches of bowel that is several meters long is probably not going to be that useful unless you're dealing with the underlying issues. But if there is a big hard stone there that's obstructing stool flow and obstructing uh, urinary flow, and they're getting overflow incontinence, or they're getting uh, urinary retention, um, you just need to go ahead and disimpact that stool. And this can be done in, in a long-term care facility, lots of you know water-soluble lubricant, or you can send the patient to the emergency department if it's really severe But again, keeping in mind the limitations and remembering that it's a quality of life issue too and a dignity issue too for your patients. Another alternative, again, without a lot of evidence and not necessarily that effective would be um, a suppository or an enema. Again, I'm not a huge fan of those. I don't tend to use them a lot. If a patient's really impacted, I will just disimpact them. Sometimes under under a general anesthetic. Other times, it's it's more just a focus on loosening things from the top down, and then gradually that hard feces will resolve. Okay, so moving on, moving on, moving on. At the very bottom of treatment, you notice how I saved it for the last. Comes your prescriptions, okay? Because I really again want to emphasize the importance of treating the underlying medical conditions. Treat the patient. Treat the family. Treat the circumstances. Look for all these contributing causes and then at the very end of it, write the prescription if you need to. Okay. So, number one on this list, and my list is by no means comprehensive. Number one is like psyllium or, or fiber. I again view this as therapy. And it, like all therapies, there are side effects and there are negative consequences in terms of quality of life. So, forcing somebody to chug a whole bunch of psyllium fiber every day for the last remaining years of their life. I don't know if that's necessarily effective or fair. And I ask myself, would I want to drink psyllium every day? And the answer is probably not. Or would I want that for my loved one? So there may be a role for it for these, you know, added fibers in patients who have this kind of alternating hard, soft stool or overflow diarrhea or overflow incontinence. Um, there's some theory and, you know, I I remember, you know, being a medical student on my rotation with a colorectal surgeon who talked about how, you know, these bulking agents, these bulking fibers serve to kind of regulate water content in the stool and may, you know, make it more appropriately thickened where it needs to be thickened and soften where it needs to be softened. But again, this is a very long process and this may be a kind of a permanent treatment for patients. So I try to be mindful and, typically in my own, own practice, at least rarely start it. And then moving on to peg 3350, or in Canada is refer to it as Restorlax, which is the white ubiquitous flakes that we find in every age group, children, all the way up to the very elderly. It's a, essentially, as far as I can tell, a plastic that goes into you, soaks up a whole bunch of water, does not get absorbed, and doesn't have a lot of side effects, other than if you overshoot the mark, your patient will get diarrhea. So my own your know, personal approach to this is a very, very gradualist approach, again, emphasizing that it takes weeks and weeks, months and months to become constipated and weeks and weeks to become unconstipated. So I try not to rush with unrealistic expectations of the so-called clean out, the therapeutic catharsis, as it were, um, but rather emphasize a very gradualist approach um, because constipation is not a medical emergency. Um, So it's rare that somebody needs to all of a sudden trigger a torrent of diarrhea, which in a patient who is elderly with mobility issues or a patient with cognitive or behavioral issues, this can be an absolute disaster at home or in the hospital. So here it is. Week one, for one week, I tell the patient to have one cap full of Restorlax or the 17 grams. If they're not having, after one solid week, seven days of improvement in their stool then week two they go to two capfuls per day and it doesn't have to be staggered you know bid it can all be just take two capfuls in the morning and go about your day and again try to increase that fluid intake by 500 cc's if that's not working get up to three capfuls per day again for seven days and if that fails to work follow up So, you know, for, you know, we obviously don't follow patients up for these kind of issues in the emerge, but I say, you know, follow up with your family doctor or primary care physician to see where we're at and what needs to be done. But that's my very, very simple approach to it. Another thing you can consider adding on, particularly in the elderly, is Senicot, which will stimulate bowel motility. There is a risk of dependence with it or so-called sluggish bowel um, when it's discontinued. So, again, be mindful that whatever you're starting the patient on is going to be something they have to take potentially for the rest of their lives. What I like about Restorelax is it's essentially flavorless, odorless, dissolves in water, juice, pop, milk, uh, tea. I mean, not that you want it and all of those things, but geez, you can put it there. So it's relatively well tolerated compared to a lot of other stuff. And then if your patient has massive, massive constipation, which you're either seeing on imaging or it's just you've disimpacted rock hard stool, rock hard stool, rock hard stool, uh, and there seems to be no end in sight, and they're just full, they can be treated in the emergency department with essentially like a, an overnight bowel prep. Um, and in some patients, physicians will actually put an NG tube in and administer go lightly over a period of several hours if the patient's not able to drink orally, like if you know there's an inability to consume you know oral Restor- relax or sorry, go lightly. Then uh, it can go in an NG tube, and in which case you're using Zofran or Maxran as a motility agent, and essentially you're waiting for what our nurses have nicknamed it the punami or tsunami of poo um, that will inevitably come. Because I have an expression: lax, peg, go lightly. They always win. They never lose. I've never had somebody who's been on a bowel prep and is like, "Oh, this Restorilax isn't working." Oh no, it yeah. always works. Or I should say, this go lightly isn't working. Oh no, it always works. A more nuanced and gentler approach that allow a patient to do this at home would be to have them drink 500 cc's of go lightly per day for four days. So not the full four liters of a bowel prep, not doing it in you know 16 or 12 hours, but actually doing it over four days, just going for two liters over four days is a gentler kind of compromise. And I've had patients with good results on that. But again, emphasizing that, yes, well, the bowels will loosen and everything will get moving. Unless we resolve the underlying issues, it's all going to come back again. And you really don't want to put your patients through that seesaw back and forth pattern of constipation, laxatives, constipation, laxatives. You just want to go in a very gentle, gradualist approach. That's it for, for treatment. And then when do you refer? Well, obviously you refer if they're failing to improve, you've got concerns about, you know, an underlying malignancy or, you know, neurological disorder or something along those lines, um, any red flags at all, remember that this is a medical condition and so should be treated as such. And you should refer, um, whether it's to gastroenterology or general surgery, whether they need scopes, whether they need more aggressive therapy, managing, or even sending them back to their, you know, potentially even sending them back to their neurologist or psychiatrist for medication adjustments to see if we can find a reasonable compromise. But that all, again, comes later. I think it's very reasonable to just start on peg 3350. So with that being said, I'm just going to summarize right here, which is step one, make the diagnosis. Step two, Screen for red flags. Step three, identify contributing factors, and there are many of them. Step four, treat and remember to treat the whole patient. Any questions at all, Dimitri?
1: No, no, That that's pretty much my takeaway. And uh, and again, I, I really like the fact that you mentioned that it takes time for the medication to work. This is very dis- distressing to patients, and they want a solution fast, but sometimes there isn't one. So follow-up is important. And secondly, you need to figure out how they go to the bathroom <laughs> if they're having you issues. You really
0: got to get into the details. Which we it's forget. A, we forget to do. Uh, Dimitri, it's a top-to-bottom analysis.
1: <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. But, Kevin.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But honestly, honestly, you know, when you take the time to deal with this issue, you're making a huge huge improvement in a patient's quality of life and dignity. And I think what you'll find is if you get into that questioning and you do that exam, if you have to do a digital examination, you're going to find that your patients are grateful that you take the time and you show you care and you want to get to the bottom of the issue. That wasn't a joke.
1: Uh, I I thought you said no more puns. (laughs) All right. I know I thought I said no more puns, but
0: (laughs) they just came all at the end of the presentation again that wasn't a joke either now i'm
1: done (laughs) all right let's stop let's stop here (laughs) for more come out thank you dr kevin